Amen. So be it, Lord. God bless you as you're seated today. There are moments, some of them recorded in Scripture, some of them recorded in the journal of your own life that seem strange. They seem redundant. They seem out of place. For instance, you don't need to turn to it, but in Genesis 17, we talked about this when we were studying Abraham on Wednesday nights last year. There is a moment when God seems to be moving full steam ahead in Abraham's life. He's teaching him lessons right and left. Abraham is building altars and winning victories. And right in the middle of all of that, God stops and says this, Abraham, I am the Lord your God, the God Almighty, the God who has called you out of Ur of the Chaldees. I've called you out of everything, and I'm taking you to a new place. The New Testament described it as a city whose builder and maker is God. This is what I'm the God that's been doing that. Therefore, walk before me and be perfect. Another way of translating perfect is mature, or complete, complete. It sounds like God is saying, well, I'm going to change the conditions for your blessing. I, I brought you in under this, but now I want you to be perfect. Or it sounds perhaps that God is interested in correcting something that has brought dissatisfaction to his, uh, to his mind concerning Abraham. But can I tell you something, loved ones? God was pleased with Abraham. There's no record of him being dissatisfied with Abraham's progress. So why in the world did God stop in the middle of it and say, Abraham, I want you to be perfect or I want you to be complete. I want you to know it was God's way of, of saying to Abraham, my words, Abraham, you've done great, but there's more. And I want you to move to another level. I want you to be complete I want you to be perfect. Now, understanding the biblical word perfect, um, you, you, you would have to understand the, the meaning of the idea of complete. If you were to go into an orange grove in the middle of summer and take an orange off the tree and take a bite, you'd say, oh, this is, this is no good. This, this is not, not good at all. Well, and you'd look at it and you'd say, why is it green, you know? And you'd figure out it's not ripe. But you know what? That orange was absolutely perfect for an orange at that time of the year. It's supposed to be green. It's supposed to be bitter. It's supposed to turn your face inside out if you take a bite of it. And that's why you can say an orange, even though it's not ripe, is perfect. It's perfect for the stage it's in. But that orange has to mature. And I think what we need to understand is that God is interested, even when he's pleased with us at a level, you'll never get to the point till you get to heaven where he doesn't say, there's more, there's more, there's more. One of the most profound prayers a pastor can pray over you in the altar or a ministry team person can pray for you in the altar is more because there is always more. God always deals with us in terms of a process a new intimacy, a new blessing, a new responsibility. So with that in mind, I want to take you to the first of our foundational stones. Now we're going to find out that uh, there are 10 foundational stones. We're under pressure from some Christian teachers today to just forget the 10 commandments and they want to replace it with like maybe love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and love your neighbor as yourself. But that's not New Testament, that's Old Testament. Uh, it, it is Old, it is New Testament, but it's just a repetition of the Old Testament. And we make a real mistake when we try to interpret the present without understanding the past. I, I want you to stay with me now because this is very important. Um, something happened back during the last presidential election. If, if I'm remembering correctly, it was it was in the early primaries, it was before either party even had their candidate. Now, now don't interpret this as a pro for one candidate or an 
anti another president. That's not what I'm talking about. Because at the time it happened, I was, my mind was still trying to investigate. I had not chosen who I wanted to support for the office of president. There were, um, I don't know, a half dozen or, or maybe fewer Democrats. And like at, at that time, I think there were like 19 Republicans. So the field was wide open. And Donald Trump, who was a candidate, a long shot, um, he said something, he quoted a Bible scripture, and he said, as it says in 2 Corinthians. And when I heard that, I thought, you know, my first thought was, well, I wish everybody knew what was in that passage of scripture. And I thought, well, you know, at least he knows that scripture. You know, and I, I just kind of dismissed it. I said, I don't know if he means it. I don't know if he's just a politician using a verse. But I noted that he had referenced 2 Corinthians, or as we would say, 2 Corinthians. And I want to tell you, something happened over the next few days. It was viral. It went all over the place. Donald Trump's quoting a scripture, and he doesn't even know that it's 2 Corinthians instead of 2 Corinthians. And it wasn't, it wasn't even his opponents in the other party that made fun of that as much as it was Christians in America. Here's a man trying to fool us into thinking he's a Christian by saying, you know, quoting a scripture, and he says 2 Corinthians. Big names in evangelical circles began to say he doesn't even know the Bible language. And I said, don't do this. Don't do this. Whether Trump is, is from God or from the devil, don't do this. You're about to discredit all of us. People began to say 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. And I, I, the more I read, I thought, guys, ladies, don't do this. You're showing your ignorance. And you say, what in the world are you talking about? Well, I love history. I don't think you can understand the present without understanding history. That's why I don't like revisionist history. That's why I don't think that you can adequately say what happened in the past when you haven't studied the past. You can't just step into the present and then make a comment about the past. You see, the fact of the matter is, is that for 300 years, British scholarship and British speaking, uh, English speaking nations around the world from a Brit British background, almost without exception, we're one of the exceptions for 300 years has called it 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. R.T. Kendall has preached in this church. Please turn with me to 2 Corinthians. Please turn with me to 2 Thessalonians. And they ripped Donald Trump apart. Now, I wasn't, I wasn't concerned about them defending Donald Trump. He was not my choice for president at the time. He wasn't my candidate at the time. But I thought when you don't understand the past, you are, you are invalidating anything you have to say about anything else. Well, I think finally it died down, but he's still being laughed at for saying 2 Corinthians. Um, but that's not the point I'm trying to make. The point I'm trying to make is if you don't understand the past, you can make some very serious mistakes. It gave me a flashback to when I was 12 years old. You say, Pastor, come on, this is Super Bowl Sunday, get with it. Okay, well, the year they had the first Super Bowl, I, I remember this happening. And uh, my dad, we were, we were in, uh, I think it was in North Carolina. I think we were at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, and we were walking, and my dad said, son, you're becoming a man. He said, it's... Uh, it's time you started sharing and being a gentleman to your mother. And uh, I said, okay. And he started from that point on, you know, I would try to take my mom, let her take my arm. And I'll never forget, my dad spoke this to me. I'm walking on the inside. See, all my life, my mom has protected me. She walks on the outside near the street. I walk on the inside. Your dad said, son, you need to come over here. I said, why do I need to come over here? This is what my dad said. He said, because now if you're the protector, you've got to keep your mom away from traffic. And he, sa he said, and also it goes back to the days in old England. He knew I loved old England. He said, because when a buggy would pass by and before the days of paved roads, there was a lot of mud holes, a buggy would often splash up on pedestrians and a gentleman 
wants the splash to go on him instead of the lady. I said, all right, I'll be a gentleman. Well, nothing happened in North Carolina, but weeks later, weeks later, now I'm, I'm, I've got, there's a reason to this madness, stay with me. Weeks later, um, we were in downtown Pensacola doing some shopping and um, I was with my mom and I remembered what my dad said. So I took her arm and I stepped on the outside and I thought everybody in Pensacola will probably realize that I'm being a gentleman. I was very proud of being a gentleman. And a Tucker taxi drove by and covered me, just hit a hole and just covered me with, uh, with muddy water from off the street. And at first I thought, whoa, what happened? My mom just was in a panic because she's got to wash the clothes and she didn't want her baby getting splashed on. But I, I thought, Behold the gentleman. I was so proud. It's like an anniversary card I sent Ramona a couple of years ago. The card said, another year of sheer unadulterated bliss. And you open it up and the inside just says, you're welcome. You know, that's, that's the way I felt, you know. So we get in the car, we go home, I am drenched, I'm dirty, I have mud on my face, I won't let my mom wipe it off because it's my badge of honor. I walk in the house because I think my relatives will all cheer me. I'm very proud of being the gentleman, I think they will all cheer me. And um, I walk in, they ask what happened, and I told them, and I became the laughing stock of the whole family dinner. Uh, what I should have done is gone in and just changed clothes and let that be between me and my mom. But I wanted to show off. And you gotta understand, I was only 12 years old uh, during the year of the first Super Bowl. And <laughs> I, uh, but I was humiliated. Every, every, you know, Steve, will you pass the gravy? Oh, try not to spill it on you. You know, it was like that the whole evening. And I, I ended up, I got to tell you the truth. I ended up going to my room crying. It got so bad. It really did. Um, now, nobody, man, they just thought they were being funny. But I knew something. I knew what was behind my action. My dad knew what was behind my action. I found out years later that my dad gave a pretty good lecture to everybody when I went out of the room to cry and change clothes. But you say, where are you trying to go with this, Pastor? I'm trying to say that when we try to get away from the past, especially when we don't understand the past, that's my concern about churches and ministries that think they're being cutting edge and user friendly. They don't understand passages like Proverbs 22, 28, when the proverb says a wise man doesn't remove a boundary post that was set there by the ancestors. See, in Israel, it's like this in, in out, out west. I've seen this over and over again. You'll be driving through and it looks like there's nothing there. And then you'll see a pile of rocks just in the middle of nowhere, a pile of rocks. Well, those ranchers will tell you that that was put there by my great-great-granddaddy. That was put there when Ulysses S. Grant was president of the United States. This is the marker between my land and his land. You don't remove those things or everything goes into chaos. Long before the day of GPS and surveyors and all of that, this was the way we marked our territory. And Proverbs says, don't remove those boundaries. Now, please understand what I'm trying to say. Um, it, it, and it goes back to Deuteronomy. It, it, uh, it even goes back to the earliest days. Job talks about not removing boundary posts. And Job was probably the earliest story of the Bible other than Genesis 6 through 11, or 1 through 11. And it was a big deal. Don't remove the ancient boundaries. And loved ones, we are in an age today when ancient boundaries don't matter. 
When someone tries to talk about the past, we just call them boomer and move on. But there is a principle of Scripture that you don't move past ancient boundaries. That's why I think it is grievously wrong. It's not just a bad idea. I think it's grievously wrong to tell people to unhitch from the Old Testament and hitch up to a new wagon. The, it, we do not have, in, in actuality, we do not have two versions of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. We don't have God and then God 2.0. We have a first part of the Bible that was incomplete without the second part of the Bible. But modern teachers are trying to teach us that the second part is complete without the first. And you can't possibly do that. Now, it's probably not an issue to most of you, but I'm telling you that's one of the biggest fights in American society right now. If we become a Christian culture again, which Christian culture will we adapt? The one with no roots or the one with solid roots? We've got to understand that the Old Testament is not to be forgotten Jesus did not teach that. He did not teach that it should be set aside. But Jesus said the Old Testament is, the, is fulfilled by me coming. He didn't say it was now null and void. He said it was fulfilled. Jesus answered questions about God from the context of the Old Testament. And the two greatest commandments, that comes from the Old Testament. So we've got to start seeing the Bible again with one unit, one message, one understanding. Now, that long introduction was to say this. I'm going to 10 foundational words that I think will make a difference for modern Christians. I think it is the foundation that they must of necessity latch onto if their lives are going to be meaningful. And I want to give you a surprise in spite of some young theologians today. I want to tell you they're based on the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments have not been done away with. The Ten Commandments have been fulfilled. The Ten Commandments by Jesus' life have not been marginalized. The Ten Commandments are now able to blossom and bloom. And as we study these 10 foundational stones, we're going to take one a month between now and November. And I think you've got on your outline, I don't know if we've got it in the notes or not, um, th there's a chart that we're going to fill in as the year goes along. No, right now we just got the back of my head, so I guess we don't have it. But it is in your chart. And the first word down at the bottom is the word embrace. You don't live Christianity in, the, in terms of modern understanding. You live Christianity effectively to the extent that you go back and understand roots. You will be going the rest of your life to a place where you think you're doing everything fine and God will say to you and me like he did to Abraham, I want you to be mature. It's time for you to start shading and changing from green to shades of orange. It's, it's what's on the inside of you, the juice that you're perfectly happy with. It's time for it to begin to have a mellowness and, and a sweetness instead of a tartness. See, God will come to you when you think you need it least <laughs> and say, hey, let's go deeper. Let's get into this thing the way it was meant to. So let me give you the first foundation stone today. Now, I'm not going to give you this introduction every month, but remember, you say, Pastor, it's like you're just trying to put us back. Yes, I am. I'm trying to get you to go back and put your roots where they belong. I want your roots in deep ground, not some terrace, you know, planter. I want it to go deep. And we find the first foundation stone in Exodus 20. God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. See, there's this issue of change. There's this issue of embracing something. And when you embrace something, we're going to find out next month, you have to abandon something. You have to reject something. Your perception changes. It's not that what happened to you changed. It's your understanding of it. You know, I've said something that Justin taught me years ago. I don't, I don't know if he came up with it or he got it from somewhere, but Justin helped me understand people years ago. He said, Pastor, you've just got to understand hurting people are going to hurt people. 
Hurting people will hurt people. And you just got to expect that. Well, I know that, but I didn't like it at the time because I was the one hurting. But, uh, but it was true. It was very true. You, you change even in regard to your hurts and pains. When you are a child, when you are immature, you want to celebrate your hurts. I've got a bobo. I need a Band-Aid. I know what it's like to bring a Band-Aid to my children, flesh-colored, nobody will notice it. No. I want Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> I want Superman. I want Spider-Man. One of my grandchildren is so into those characters, and he loves the Band-Aid so much. I, just, for, I think it was for Valentine's Day. I just bought him a box of, of cartoon Band-Aids, and he wore them every day till they were all gone. He didn't even have wounds, you know. When we are immature, we want to celebrate our wounds. We want everybody to know about our wounds. We want everybody to see our wounds and commiserate. That's why you have people that are grown. I'm not talking about little children. They're grown. But everything they do carries their wounds. Every discussion they have at, at any length carries their wounds. Any length of time passes, they're going to hit heads with somebody again, and they don't understand what they're saying is, look at my Band-Aids. But you know what you do when you get older? You know what you do when you get mature? You look for those invisible bandages. You, you, don't, you don't want people to know, yeah, I ran into the cabinet door or, yeah, I nearly cut my thumb off with the saw. You know, you, you, you don't want to, you know, the more mature you are, the less attention you want drawn to your wounds. Now, guys, I know I'm going in some deep water here, but what God is after in us with these 12 foundation stones is an attempt to drive everything away from us that keeps us from experiencing everything God has for us. Now, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And that verse is given in Exodus 20, uh, chapter 20, and it's also given in Deuteronomy chapter 5. The Ten Commandments in their complete form are given twice in the Old Testament. And um, it, it's followed, this is what your card tells you today, when God gave the Ten Commandments. And you've got to understand, when you read the, the, the prelude to the Ten Commandments and you read the follow-up of the Ten Commandments, <laughs> it's very clear. God says, your society is revolving around these foundational stones. That's why he put it this way to us in Deuteronomy 6.5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That's the approach we ought to have as we, as we move with the Ten Commandments. Now, Exodus 21 through 17, I, I don't have time to read it today. I'll probably read it next, uh, next month. Or, or if we have time today, we can go over it. Or you can read it on your own. The version I like, uh, because there's so much detail, is Deuteronomy 5, chapter, or verses 6 through 22. But I'll read that for you, uh, leave that for you to read later. So let's go to the outline. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. The first foundational stone is the word embrace. God says for your life to be built upon the rock, the first rock that you put in place is the idea there's something you embrace, not something you tip your hat to, not something you intellectually assent to, uh, have intellectual assent toward, but it is something that you embrace, something that you embrace. When the book of Proverbs, and I'm not trying to be uh, sensual when I say this, when it says rejoice with the, the wife of your youth and let her breasts satisfy you at all times, that's not a statement about mammary glands. It's a statement about embracing the, the Hebrew word, I mean, it, it literally says breast, but it comes from the idea of when you embrace, you touch. And he says, let that thing you embrace 
satisfy you at all times. It didn't say that every moment with your wife or husband would be a sexual moment, but it did say this, at all times you will be secure in the embrace. You'll be secure in the relationship. At all times you'll be secure in the love. Now, loved ones, the reason so many people do not live in Christian victory is that they don't, they don't embrace God. They, they want to get close to God. They want to fly by and give God a high five every now and then. They might want to shake hands, but the way the Christian life is lived, the only way it can be lived is for it to be an embrace where regardless of the moment, your satisfaction is in that relationship. That's why Job was able to say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's why the three Hebrew children were able to say, we know that our God is able and we believe that he will, but even if he doesn't, see, that's an embrace. You don't get that from afar off. But even if he doesn't, we know that he is the one we will cling to. We will worship him. We will not do another. That's why you're able to say as the angels did, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. All you've got to do is look at the front page of the newspaper or the, or the front uh, page of the website that you go to and you find out that the world's not full of his glory from the world's perspective, but like those holy beings, when you live in his presence, when you live in an embrace, no matter what goes on in the world, the whole world is full of his glory because his embrace satisfies you at all times. Now, how do we know God? What is there about God that we embrace? I want to say this. I know I've been saying it a lot, but you don't understand what a fight our kids are in for this. You don't understand what a fight our colleges and universities that call themselves Christians are in. There's a, there's a systematic move right now to make the word of God less than what it is so that we're not offended by being unscientific. And we, don't want, we want people to have faith, but we don't want them to have to have faith. We want to have just enough faith that we choose to have faith. Oh, I probably should have just saved this for second service. I can tell. You've got it. You've got it. But we don't want anything to do with faith that requires us to stretch out beyond our comfort zone. You know, it's like trying to get a baby to jump into your arms. He's up on the couch or he's up on something. And he, he wants to, he, he, he has enough faith to have faith. But what does he do when he has to just keep leaning forward? He moves to another level of faith. And I'm here to tell you that in this age of intellectualism, in this age of information, faith is being marginalized. And without knowing it, churches have caved into a belief system that requires you to believe, but just not too much. Requires you to embrace, but only casually. You know, you know how it is with that relative that you come up and you hug them and you, oh, it's so good to see you in there. That's the kind of embrace we want. You know, once at Thanksgiving is enough for a year. The obligatory hug, thank you, Aunt Susie, for the Christmas gift. But the Bible word, the Bible word for embrace is, literally is the idea of just bringing two together as with a husband and with a wife, not, not necessarily sexually, but that total and complete commitment. So if we've got to embrace God, how do we know who God is? Well, let's go to number one on your outline and we'll work through this very quickly. There are agents of revelation. There are basically four ways that we know God according to scripture. Number one, nature declares him. Now, nature doesn't tell us everything there is to know about God. Every culture that has ever been discovered, without exception as far as I know, worships something, and it usually is something of nature. Nature is the lowest form of revelation, but even nature points us toward a God. 
Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Now, science today can explain everything, but from earliest times, this was, this was the way it was. This was the pile of stones we had before someone moved them. When you look at the sun, when you look at the moon, when you look at nature, when you look at the beauty, when you look at the majesty, when you look at the incredible um, migration principles and all of these kinds of things, the natural tendency for eons has been to say somebody made that. Now science is going to great, great lengths to say, no, it evolved, but in and of itself, creation says there is a creator. So nature declares him. Conscience declares him. Romans 2.15 2, says their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Now conscience is not the Holy Spirit. I've, been, I've heard a lot of good men and women of God try to tell us that the conscience is another name for the Holy Spirit. That's not true, not even remotely true. Because conscience can be, uh, can be killed, conscience can be twisted, conscience can be distorted. The Holy Spirit can never be killed or twisted or distorted, uh, not, not him anyway. But the conscience can be overridden. And conscience is just another level of creation. We all have a conscience, not all have the Holy Spirit, but we all have a conscience. And conscience is the second thing that tells us why do we feel badly about these things? Well, it's because my mama was mean to me. And yeah, you can get a conscience distorted, but everyone is born in their purest elemental form with a sense of right and wrong. And it's a gift of God. Scripture declares in number three, then beginning with Moses, this is Jesus at uh, the walk to Emmaus, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. The writer of Hebrews says God has spoken to us in various ways through the scriptures, through conscience, through creation, through all of these things. But now God has spoken to us even more clearly through his son, Jesus Christ. And faith declares him. This is what John uh, wrote in the first chapter of his gospel. He said, he came into his own and his own received him not, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right or the power to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. If we don't accept Jesus, we never have faith. But if we accept the Lord based on that inkling of faith that we have, God gives us a power to begin to see and begin to understand. And we're brought into fellowship with God. And eternal life is not something we're going to get. Eternal life is something that we have right now. John said, those who believe in him have passed from death unto life. So he's revealed by faith. You say, well, I just wish I could prove it. You can prove it. Everybody that's a Christian has a knower. You say, where is it? It's invisible. I don't know where it is in you. It's in the spiritual part of you or the soulish part of you, but we just call it a knower. It's something that you can't prove with natural means. But it's something that passes all doubt. It's something that passes all misunderstanding. You just know that your sins are forgiven and that you've been born again. Now, I want to say this. There's a couple more things about this tirade I'm on today. Loved ones, and we need to teach this to our children. It is required that we believe, not that we understand. We are not required as Christians to understand. We are required to believe. We're told to search the scriptures, but in this culture today, there is a move against plenary verbal inspiration. You see, in the Assemblies of God, we believe in plenary verbal inspiration. What that means is we believe the whole Bible is inspired in its completeness from Genesis to Revelation, every word is inspired. It, the whole thing is inspired. And we not only believe that the message of the Bible is inspired, but we believe that the very words were chosen by God, chosen by the Holy Spirit. Now, the meaning of those words can translate into other languages. And 
And we, you know, we believe all of that. But the Holy Spirit chose this word to be used because it conveys this meaning. And those of you that teach the Bible is just a collection of stories. And what matters is the stories. Just so we tell the story. Well, the problem is just telling stories is without the words, you don't know what the stories were meant to entail. No, I'm telling you, in, in an attempt to lessen the requirement of faith, our kids are being taught in seminaries and colleges today, and I've got several seminary degrees, but I want to tell you, I believe that for the most part, most seminaries ought to really be called cemeteries. I really do, because for everyone that teaches the authority and the, and the sufficiency of God's Word, there are those that have devoted themselves to explaining away any supernatural element of God's Word. In an attempt to get respectability in the intellectual world, we have largely walked away from faith. And we have adopted, oh, I ought to be getting all kinds of amens, a few handkerchiefs thrown in the air or something. There's one. But praise God. You know, seriously, we are past the age of Christian reason and of Christian thought in America, and we instead have embraced a willingness to go through society without raising any uh, flutter or any waves because we don't want to appear dis dishonorable scientifically or intellectually. Well, that's good preaching. That's good. That's good preaching. Um, Remember this by Sidlow Baxter from a hundred plus years ago. The scriptures reveal enough information to make our faith intelligent. It withholds enough information to give our faith room to grow. Now, there's one more thing I want to address because if you don't get this, none of the other foundation stones will matter. Not nearly as much. The first one is embrace there is another big move. Now you say, Pastor, I don't hear about all of this stuff. It's because you go to a church that doesn't believe in this stuff. And, and you need to consider yourself fortunate. I consider myself fortunate to sit with you in service. I, I drove up today and I saw all the cars and I said, Lord, thank you for allowing me to meet with people where we don't have to argue about the Word of God. Thank you for this congregation. But our children are being taught that, well, we have the Bible, but a lot of it is myth. Some of it's fact, some of it is myth. And loved ones, I just want to say this to you. I, I really want to say this to you. Number one, to all of you, be careful what you listen to. Be careful who you listen to. And just because the History Channel calls somebody an expert, that doesn't make them an expert. You know, it's like scholar. Try to define scholar. The general consensus that a scholar is someone who is scholarly. And what I'm trying to say is there is no benchmark for what makes a scholar. There's no degree that makes you a scholar. There are many scholars that don't have degrees. And there are many people who have many degrees that are not scholars. <coughs> and we have bowed at the God of intellectualism since the Enlightenment and even before that in the Renaissance. We have bowed to the God of intellectualism and we have walked away from faith. We have walked away from studying the scriptures as the word of life. And we are looking for ways to not appear stupid to the world. So when it comes to matters of creation, well, it's just a myth. Was there a real Adam and Eve? Well, it's just a myth. I mean, the thought that everybody started from... You know, well, you got to understand, if, if Adam and Eve were a myth, the New Testament is a lie. Not only because of the words of Jesus, but Paul's writing in Romans. He says, every one of us have problems because every one of us came from that first Adam. Whether we're black or white or rich or poor or liberal or conservative, all of us, if you could trace our family tree back far enough, we'd all be going to the same Sunday dinner because we all came from Adam and we all came from Eve. And he said, because we all came from that first Adam, we are broken because Adam, as the head of the race, uh, some theologians call him the federal head of the race, 
when, when a perfect race fell, it affected all the generations to follow. So we're all broken. And he says, not only were we all broken through Adam, but all of us can receive life through the last Adam, who was Jesus. And Paul goes to great lengths to explain why we're in the mess we're in and how we can get out of the mess we're in. But if it's just a myth, then his story of salvation is just a myth. And Paul and Peter went to great lengths to say we are not following cleverly devised myths or tales or fables. Loved ones, we need to stand strong on the principles of the scripture again because this idea of the Old Testament needing to be unhitched from, this idea of the Old Testament being irrelevant, this idea of the scripture being a collection of myths or fables is nothing more or less than an accommodation of doubt. It's a questioning of the authority and the authenticity of God's word. I'm telling you, it's a step away from faith you say, no, 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 I know a lot of people that this has helped them come to the Lord. It does help them come to the Lord because they no longer have to believe. They can just high five. Loved ones, I, I know I'm ruining your Super Bowl day. I know it. But you need to understand, there is no way to the Father except through what Jesus taught and through Jesus himself. And I tell you, it's going to be a battle beyond our expectation, but it's something that God is calling us to be perfect over. And that is this idea of embracing, of embracing. Okay, what's the allegiance God demands? First of all, no syncretism. Nothing is to be added. We're going to find out about that next month when we talk about rejection. No syncretism. Nothing's to be added. It can't be Jesus and Allah. It can't be Jesus and Buddha. It can't be Jesus and the Lakers. It, oh, I'm sorry. That slipped out of my flesh. I'm sorry. I'll take that back. I'll take that back. I'm just trying to lighten up here. Don't get mad. I'm just, I'm just telling you that um, nothing is to be added. You see, a lot of times, even in missions, we're so eager to help someone accept Jesus, we'll tell them you don't have to reject your old stuff. We'll just blend it together. But that's not allowed. There's no modification. Nothing can be changed. And we need to ask ourselves every now and then, what is this, what is this simple test for idolatry? You say, well, I don't bow down and worship a tree. I don't worship the sun, but idolatry. See, in America, idols tend to wear coat and ties. Demons wear coats and ties. And so we ask ourselves questions like this. Is there anything that I fear more than God? If so, it's an idol. Is there anything I trust more than God? Bank account, whatever. If so, it's an idol. Is there anything that I love more than God? It can be an idol. Is there anything that I serve more than God? It can be an idol. So what is the approach to God that we must take? I must come to God submissively. We need to understand this. I must not think it is acceptable to come to God on my terms. The rich young ruler said, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. And Jesus cut right to the heart of the matter. He says, you've done this and this is good. You ought to have done this. But would you be willing to sell everything you've got and come follow me? You see, we, we create this impressive resume where we said, I've done all of this. And Jesus says, hey, that's wonderful, but you only left one thing out. And he has, that's why God can speak to my heart and drive me to my knees over something that you would never be driven to your knees over because it's not an issue. What has a hook in me might not have a hook in you. I have to come to him submissively. Do you know that Moses, one of the things we overlook of him, he's the most powerful, the most, he spoke to God face to face like friends, 
But the scripture says of him that he was the meekest man on the face of the earth. And when we think of meekness, we think of, you know, Wally Cox or somebody that just, you know, has no spine, no backbone. That's not what meek means. In fact, um, the word meek in its original usage when King James was translated, it would have meant the most teachable, the most submissive, the most controllable man on the face of the earth. In other words, God said, uh, he wasn't saying Moses was milk toast. He was saying Moses will do anything that I put in his heart. Nobody follows me like Moses. And that's why he had that kind of relationship. I must come to God submissively. I must come to God sincerely. Um, it's not just a sliver of my life that I give to God. I don't have my home, my politics, my membership in Kiwanis and Rotary and the church. It doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. We must come sincerely and we must come scripturally. We must come according to scripture. Now loved ones, I cannot promise you peace. I cannot promise you heaven. If you approach this awesome God on your own peace initiative, let me tell you how important it is to come to him with belief instead of understanding. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them for since the creation of the world his invisible attributes his eternal power divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through that which was made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and calling, crawling creatures. Therefore, this is the high price of coming to God on your terms. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And what, what this verse here means is that because they refused the truth that has been presented to them through creation and through conscience and through scripture and through the revelation of Jesus, God says, I will turn them over to a new standard of living. And it is to live according to their own limited understanding. He said it was for this reason, because God has given them over to a different mindset that God gave them over to degrading passions. Their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the unnatural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the penalty due their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And all of this comes... From, not from denying God, but by saying, I don't like him the way he is. I don't like what he demands. <laughs> Give me 30 days and a term paper and I can redefine God into a more agreeable sort. <laughs> Although they know the uh, ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. And then, you know what Paul did after writing those verses? He went on Romans as the ABCs of salvation. And in chapter 1, he says, look, this is why we're all in trouble. We have said that if there is a God, we will make him in our image, and we will follow him on our terms. We will determine what's right and wrong. 
and we think we're brilliant. But you know what Paul says? This is terrifying. He says, because you've rejected the truth, he has turned you over to that. That's why you're so, so sure you're right. That's why you think your way of life is so logical. It's not because you're brilliant. It's not because you're smarter than Christians. It's not because you're smarter than God. It's because you've been turned over to a lie. 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul wrote, he said, this is what will happen when Antichrist is revealed. He said he will be arrogant. He will exalt himself. And this is what will happen in the days of Antichrist. He says, because men have rejected the truth which has been shared with them, God turns them over to a reprobate mind to believe that which is not proper, to believe that which is not right. Loved ones, don't deceive yourself. We're not on the brink of a new renaissance we're not on the brink of a new enlightenment. We're right in the middle of an old-fashioned fall. We have taken the grace and the mercy, the loving kindness of God, the revelation of himself that we don't deserve. We've marginalized it. We've hated it. And if we've allowed it in our lives at all, we'll take it only in portions and we'll take it only in ways with which we agree. Well, I've thoroughly depressed you. But I want to tell you, loved ones, for God to do what he wants to do, you know what he's doing? He's taking this church, he's sitting us down. We look back as Abraham did. I'm the God that has led you and done all these things for you. And we say amen. I'm the God that has made these promises for your future. I've laid all this out before you. And we say amen. And right in the middle of our self-sufficiency, right in the middle of I finally got all my problems solved, Right in the middle of, I finally got God to the point he doesn't make uh, uh, nonsense anymore. I'm, I'm helping God express himself. Right in the middle of all of that, God says, now I want you to walk before me in completion. I want you to walk before me and be perfect. You've gotten here from there, but you still have to get from here to there. And he's not talking about working for our salvation. He's talking about receiving our inheritance. Father, we're out of time today. And I ask in the strong name of Jesus that you would help us. Lord, I, I, I know there may be some in here that don't know you as Lord and Savior. And if so, I pray they will make their decision for you before they leave. But Father, I'm concerned that there are others here that have traded in the gospel for a new system that solves their problems, lessens the demands, makes us scientifically acceptable, and doesn't require us to believe what we can't understand. We have misunderstood the two great words, understand and believe. Both of those words are important. But we've put understand ahead of believe. And some of us today need to back that cart up. Bring the horses around front again. We don't understand so that we can believe. We believe so that we can understand. 